The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Hey, what's up, everyone? We are at episode 12 of season three. This is actually going to be the final episode of season three of the Drum Candy Podcast. My name is Mike Dawson, and I'm coming to you from Drum Factory Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This is a special week. It is actually the second anniversary of this podcast. Hard to believe two years ago, I was brought back into the podcasting world um, with the new show here, the Drum Candy Podcast. It's been super cool. I can't believe we've got three seasons done already. And I thought this would be a good time to end this season because I have a lot of ideas in the works and I want to spend a couple weeks to tweak. You see back here, I've got a multi-stream setup now so I can do more lessons with multiple cameras. Um, we're still going to be doing our 10 Reasons to Love. I've still got a bunch of interviews I've already done. I've got a bunch scheduled for next week. But the big thing is I want to focus more on using this space where I can record things, you know, do some product demos kind of live on the show. And speaking of live, we might even start doing some of these episodes actually live so you can join us and ask questions to the guests as we're recording it. So we're going to end this season here with an interview with my good friend, Chris Papadoc of the band Hawthorne Heights. He goes by Poppy when he's playing drums in the band. He goes by Chris when he's off stage uh, handling all the tour manager roles for the band and also they also have a festival, Is For Lovers Festival. So if you go to isforloversfestival.com, there's events taking place throughout the country. They just did Hawaii. Um, Chris is one of the co-producers of that, and he kind of tour manages the whole thing. Uh, so this, and I interviewed him right before he started a drum camp over at Mike Johnson's place in Folsom, California. So it was a super fun hang. Um, Chris is such a cool guy, and we dig deeply into the kind of multiple roles as tour manager and all that kind of stuff, as well as his drumming and how he got involved in the band and why he's at a drum camp when he's already in a successful rock band. So hope you enjoy, and this is Poppy. Got it. All right. No more cursing. Stop talking crap about Mike Johnston. <laughs> That's right. Johnston, day one. I hate the dude. Is this the first day or second day? Uh, today's day two. Okay. Yeah. We, we had, I told him last night that I will hate him this week at, at some point. <laughs> what time does it start? Are you an early riser by trade? It's like you're in California, so 8 a.m. Yeah, yeah, it's it's 8 a.m. Um, I try to be up before 9 most days, Yeah, but... If I don't have like a, a heavy schedule and um, you know I'm not doing anything, then I just kind of get up whenever I want. But today I like went to bed purposefully early last night to be up. Oh, I guess you're still but on I'm East Coast time, right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, because I just flew in on Sunday, and yeah. uh, but um, yeah. So I've been on the East Coast for a while. You know, on the end of the tour it was all East Coast, so the time changes. It's fine, and I'm getting up and getting work done anyway. Mm -hmm. so yep so you Our literally friends. you literally ended the tour when friday saturday saturday night richmond virginia got off stage trailer was loaded by a 12 and i went to the airport and stayed up and took a flight at 5 40 in the morning <laughs> came out here <laughs> all right so my first question 
for the podcast. Thank you for coming on. Is, you're welcome. Um, so being that you're in, you have a career as a, as a drummer in a band that's touring, that's kind of doing what everyone aspires to do. Why seek out education and go to a drum camp? Because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, you know, you're, <laughs> I really don't like I've, you know, played my whole life, but with no structure, with no, no purpose, you know, I guess I'm just playing like songs because that's what I do. And I just, there's a lot of dumb luck involved in being in a band that, you know, I did, I am not an original member of the band. Uh, I've been friends with them since they started. So I watched their career literally go from playing to 20 kids who didn't care to thousands who really cared. Um, and I got in on a point where their original drummer left. So I just kind of stepped into it. So, you know, I dumb lucked into that, but I can play the songs. Like I can play the drums, but I told Mike yesterday, I'm like, I don't actually know what I'm doing. Like, you know, like I know how to play the songs, but if he says like, Oh, you know, here's the pattern, you know, if, if it's something that I can't figure out, I want to know why can't I figure it out? Like what's keeping me from learning something like, you know, I have potentially have something coming up where I'm going to have to learn a lot of things that I've never played and I'm going to struggle at some point because I just don't have the practice in to learn a song. Like I'm going to have to dumb something down and I just want to, I don't know, grow on the instrument. You know, it's really fun. Like just to like, have that oh my gosh moment right i can do this now mm. so yeah so have you taken more, any lessons more about growth uh literally no uh i took a lesson with you and i've done mike's lessons for about four i think it's four years this month maybe i've never taken a lesson ever in my life so for so you're you're well into your career when you decided to start like investigating how to play this thing. It must have been overwhelming information overload. It's still overwhelming. Like that that's that's the hard thing is like there's so much to learn, but really I'm finding out it is the most simple basic things that I need to have dialed before anything else really matters. Mm -hmm. Like if I can't do like, I have no idea how to do like foot ostinatos and play anything over them. Like I can play like, you know, so that comes into independence, but there is so much to learn. So I kind of think that that's a, a great way to think about it is like, you're never too young or too old to start practicing mm -hmm. because you're never gonna know everything. And even if you think you do like play it better, like get better at what you can do. And that, and that's a lot of it. Like, I really want to feel more confident, even if it's just a matter of like playing the songs that my band plays, I want to be better or I want to be able to give it a little something else. And I'm only going to do that by practicing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I've had adult students and oftentimes 
uh, you know, the first question I ask is, what do you want to be able to do? And it'll be something like, I want to play like Vinny Calyuta or Jack Dijonet. <laughs> and and it, for me, it's overwhelming as a teacher. It's like, well, we have to go back to, do you understand a quarter note? Do you understand time signatures? Like, you, like you're talking about decades of practice that have been built up for Vinny to be Vinny or Jack mm-hmm. to be Jack. Um, so as a teacher, it's hard for me to kind of like, how far down do you want to go? Because we really have to go back to, can you clap in time? <laughs> like, can you do that first? <laughs> I, I mean, even, even the stuff that you taught me, I wrote it out on my pad and it is, it is literally like, everything's kind of like, can you do everything gridded? Mm. You know, can you accent a paradiddle on every note, you know, with, with like freedom and, and, and like, confidence i guess you know like it's one thing to just kind of play randomly and like which i do a lot on the pad i i kind of have my warm-up stickings that i go through but then if i really slow them down i'm like well sure i can switch from you know doing a single double paradiddle going back and forth but like can i change an accent and i'm like no i'm like all right well there's my practice like that's what i should practice and i don't know if that ever makes it to the drum kit when I'm playing live, but eventually it probably will when that like muscle memory kicks in, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I did not know what a paradiddle was until hearing probably, you know, your previous podcast and like, kind of like hearing like, Oh, I remember somebody telling me that, but I never, never played it. Now it is unbelievably natural. Mm-hmm. Like I can't. So it's one of those things that, like, you you eventually those things just start to take shape in your body and they will make it to the drums eventually so that's kind of what i'm hoping for is that i can learn how to take the pad stuff to the drum kit Mm. what does mike have in store for you this week i don't know what he's doing this year for camps this year is great uh it's all about recording Mm, okay so cool. like we we had to track stuff yesterday and and i'm like this is perfect i was like i told him i was like i've tried to come twice i've never been i've had to cancel for touring and um but i'm like that's what my band does is record so and i'm terrible at it but uh <laughs> so yesterday it was like all right we're gonna you're gonna track this song and you have to do it. He's like, there's no, I can't. He's like, you're going to track the song in some form or another. Even if you have to simplify it, you're going to like play the part. So, um, yeah. So today I don't know what we're working on, but yesterday it was like, learn this part, figure out how the song goes. What are you going to play? Um, you know, and I think yesterday he was a little bit kind of feeling us out. Like he just put on a click 90 BPM and said, all right, three bars of groove, a bar of fill can you do that four times? Can you keep your count? Um, so yeah, it's all recording, I think this year, which is pretty neat. What's the process with, with, um, Hawthorne Heights for writing and, and putting together stuff to record? I think it's more common now, but typically the three, like the two guitar players and the bass player, they'll go into my guitar player has a studio and it all starts there. You know, like somebody's got it, somebody's got an idea. If it's like, 
if it's like writing time, they'll typically block out time and go down in there and work on something. But my guitar player is always writing. Uh, and when he writes, he likes to fully flesh out a song. He doesn't like, oh, I have this riff. That's gone. He doesn't really do that too much anymore. He likes to write, program all the drums, get a feel for like what the song might be. And then he'll track it um, and then send it over. Or he'll be like, hey, do you want to come over today? I'm going to work on something. You can maybe kind of like tell me if you think this is what you would play. So a lot of it's just spent in the basement, um, then working on ideas. And then really it's kind of like, here's the demo version. Now play it and kind of make it your own. And then if something doesn't work, maybe we'll change it like in the practice space, but they tend to do it all at the computer now, mm. which is very different because when me and him started playing 20 years ago in our, in our other band, we would just go to the practice space and he's like, Oh, I have this riff. Let's go loop it for two minutes until we find something. And we don't do that anymore. So I think it's technology and I think he, he has his process mm. and, you know, and like very few people want to just jam and have like chaos, you know, but then sometimes the chaos, something really great comes out of it, but you have to be patient. And I don't think a lot of people like have the time just to like sit in the room anymore when we're like in this far in our lives and like, you know, with what's going on. So um, the writing process is really weird. I don't, it's not that I don't have a hand in it, but it's kind of done when I get it. Mm, that seems to be super common. Anyone who's a teenager listening to the show, now's the time to get with your friends and jam on riffs for hours and hours and hours. I was in my parents' attic every, every other day. We would just play chili peppers riffs for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. You don't do that as an adult. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> No, like my son plays drums, bass, guitar, and he had uh, one of his friends came over one day and came in the basement and they just were down there jamming. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. Just to hear them like play off of each other and see what comes out of it. You know, yeah. like it's, it, that's, but that's the stuff that you did when you were younger. And I think as we get older, it's like, if you have a place to play and it's like, we're going to go play for eight hours today in the practice space. Like there's something to be said for that, but you really have to block that time out as an adult. Like you just, you have to, when you're a kid, you really just have nothing but time. Like, Oh, I'm not in school. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. Yeah. Screw around. Yeah. It was like play basketball one day, skateboard a little bit, get to <clears throat> drink it on the drums and just jam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I really, I really miss that. But also I understand it. you're trying to be efficient. You're, and if they've got an idea, like they're better, you know, I can't write a song. Like they know what they're doing. I'm just, I'm playing the drums to the song. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not writing drum parts that they create something around. Like my role is to play for the song. So if he's like, I think it should go here. Like, all right, it's your song. I'll I'll make it mine, but I'll play whatever's fitting for the group. Do you guys work with outside producers? Is it all self-produced? Um, our last, so we just had 
we've had two songs come out in the last six months, seven months. And we did a three song session in Nashville with a producer from Canada. He just flew in. Um, he's a young guy and the record label was like, Hey, we would like you to work with somebody outside of your comfort zone. Some of you don't know. So we did three songs with him and they're, they're great. I mean, the songs were already done. He didn't really produce as much as engineer. He had a couple of things that he did that like, you know, he was like doing the drums on the keyboards and he like kind of changed a couple of things, but ultimately the songs were pretty much done. So I can give him credit for capturing it, mm. but the guys in the band wrote the songs and I think they went for like a little more modern, a little bit more aggressive. So we, you know, when it comes time to make an album, we're going to a producer. When it's time to demo, it's just those guys in a room and then, you know, myself as well, but they're the ones, you know, and they've been doing it for so long. They kind of know how to self-produce a little bit, at least to like, all right, let's cut that out. It's too long. How long's this song? And then that's when we'll take it into a studio and, and really like, like, what do you hear? What have we done right? And what have we done wrong? Do the songs evolve once you hit, take them on the road or are they road tested first? Or are they kind of like locked in and you just play them as they are? They're kind of, they're kind of locked in. Um, we, on this tour we just finished, we played a song that came out, it came out like a week or two before the tour started. We never played it live. Like I didn't really even track it as a whole piece. I tracked it in sections because I, didn't write it and I didn't know how to play it at the tempo we were at. So that one was like, okay, let's just get through it. And now that we played it like 25 times, there's a couple, I mean, the song structure is locked in, but there's like, there's nuances that change from the recording. You know, there's like maybe a different, like I've, I know that at the end of the song, I have a couple extra snare hits that I didn't do on the recording. But um, other than a couple like little stops and starts that me and the bass player might stumble upon, the songs are pretty much true to the record, mm. um, which, you know, I love. Like there was a band called Fugazi and their whole thing was they wrote songs, took them on the road and played them and got them tight and then recorded them. So they would tour so that way they were ready to record and now for most bands you make music and then you go support it on tour and you play it um i like their idea better but I, from a financial standpoint and like a marketing standpoint i kind of understand like you want the song to be out you want people to know it so that way when you do play it live they're excited mm. and they're not just looking at you going like i don't know this play something i know but I think, you know, if you're practiced and you're ready to go in the studio and you know how the song goes, it makes the tracking a lot easier. Mm. Or it's like, you know, the song that we did, it's called Lucerne Valley. And I, I literally heard the demo. I never played it before we tracked it. And he was like, oh, it's this. I'm like, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't program it. <laughs> 
And I'm like, and we're paying for this. And <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. You know, that's, that's really frustrating. So, so how did you achieve it? You did like verse course, like in chunks just to get the parts down. Yeah. He would be like, all right. You know, I would like, I really only had problem with the verse because it just had this, it had this ghost note with like, it was basically like a syncopated like rhythm where it's just something that like I knew I could do. I just needed to practice. And if we had, like, if I had to go track it right now and be like, I got this mm-hmm. because I played it 25 times on tour, you know, and even like the first couple of days, they're like, you've got this. I'm like, yeah, I just needed to practice it. Um, but in the studio, yeah, little chunks, you know, he'd be like, okay, let's just see how far you can get. Okay. Can you give me another, just give me the chorus, you know, we'll play in, we'll play out. I'll punch you and punch you out. So you know, a little bit of like using the technology to, to get those parts down. But, you know, like even a singer, they're very rarely singing a whole song. Like they're doing like two lines at a time and drums are different because you have all that noise, you know, it's harder for the engineer, but, but we got through it and it came out great. So the, the producer did a great job with the editing and, piecing it all together because i was there it was not as seamless as it sounds <laughs> i love your humility <laughs> you sound great dude. <laughs> he, he, he did not like i do know that he didn't like have to like cheat much i was able to play i just didn't play every part like as good as i should have mm. you know he probably had to move some stuff around you guys are on but, the yeah. road so much. Do you rehearse in between tours or is you kind of work it out on the first show? Uh, I play a lot and I'll practice the songs on my own. The kind of the general general rule is be ready when it's time for the rehearsal before the show. Mm. You know, like if we're going to go on tour, we'll get together and maybe practice once or twice before a tour, depending on how many songs we're throwing in that we haven't played in a while. Um, so really it's like, okay, let's work on those two songs. So we'll give it a day or two and then we'll just use it as sound check to actually rehearse and like dial it in. But the band's been around for 20 years. The catalog is kind of, you know, it spans a lot, but most of the stuff that we have to play, we've been playing for years. So there's not a ton of rehearsal unless we're doing like, oddball songs or whatever Mm. but i i think me and our guitar player mark like we you know we make sure we dust everything off before it's time to get another practice space and prepare is there ever talk of like maybe we just don't play these old songs anymore or or is it you just you respect the catalog it's so to have a career 20 years in and people actually you know it's like we want to come see your band they do want to hear newer songs but they want to hear the songs that they connected with the band when they were 14 15 whatever they really want to hear that and honestly for us it's fun i mean you know i wasn't in the band when those songs were written but every night that we play them and i see people like singing along i'm like the show is for them Mm. It really is like 
we love playing, but we're servicing the fans, not ourselves. So like, why would you, you know, it depends on how long your set is, you know, on this tour, we had an hour. So we played, you know, like half of our catalog was stuff that I've actually been a part of. So we played six songs from the past and six songs from the present. Mm. And so we did mix it up, but if we have like a half hour set, we don't have to question what we're playing. We know because I mean, I guess to some, not to toot their horn, but they have six songs that the fans really love. And three of them were singles, you know, kind of hits. Um, so it's like, all right, those are getting played mm-hmm. for sure. So, I mean, really, there's never like, we're not going to play this tonight. It's just, it's not an option. How long was the set on the recent co-headline? An hour. We were slotted for an hour. So each band, each uh, headliner had an hour. Okay. So we, 12 songs and then uh, a lot of like story time. Mm, interesting. So I, if we blaze through the set, it'd probably be like about 40, 45 minutes if we just ripped them out. But the singer was like explaining songs and, and he likes to talk to the crowd. So that's the other thing, like making that connection with with them and you know and there was a lot of like thank you kind of you know we know that 20 years into this they could be moved on to anything else but they're still coming to our shows and um i think he like just wants that connection with those kids because it, it means something to them you know same with those songs which is kind of why we play those old songs so the other side of that I wanted to dig into is you you have the role of tour manager. So what leading up to when you actually wheels in motion on the road, what is your responsibility to get that happening? Um, so my main role is finding out like on the band side, what do we need? What are we traveling in? Um, how are we getting to the shows? You know, what's our gear situation? Like, what can we take? So it's more of a logistical thing. And then what it really comes down to is my role is to advance all the shows. So I'm contacting the promoter. I'm in touch with our booking agent or our manager to find out where we're going, who's my contact. And then I have to just set the show up. Like I kind of dictate, um, the times that we're getting in, how does the show run? Basically setting the day-to-day schedules. And then, so I spend, I probably start about a month out from tour and I just start getting all my emails, like writing out my like script and getting the Dropbox links together. So I'm kind of connecting with all the bands, getting all of their audio stuff. Like, what are you traveling in? Um, this tour was easy because we just had one bus and a minivan. So there wasn't like, I have four buses on this tour. Where am I parking them all? Um, so it was pretty easy and every show was exactly the same. Like minus, you know, the co-headliner switching, the times never changed. Everything was like, that was, it was the, one of the easiest tours I've ever had to do. But when it's like a headache, you know, if you're dealing with like smaller venues or 
maybe bands that are a little unprofessional, let's call them. Um, it makes the day to day harder, but really like, I'm just kind of making sure that everything I do leading up to it by talking to every individual promoter or production person that I've got all of my questions answered. So when I go into the show, I can say, you know what we're doing and we know what we're doing. Um, you know, and like, and if we have crew coming in, I've got to make sure that their flights are taken care of. And now I'm kind of like, I'm paying our crew. So like, I'm just kind of handling everything on tour. And this one specifically, like, so I'm drumming, TMing, and I'm also like loading, you know, the trailer. Um, but every day we'll have at this level, level that we're on now, you know, we're playing bigger venues. They'll have like, you know, we call them hands. So we'll have two or three people like helping me and our merch guy get everything out of the trailer into the venue and then back on. But, um, we're in the middle of our second year of festivals for the band. So the other three guys were handling festival stuff every day. And I would be at the venue setting up, like I set up everybody's guitars. Well, kind of, you know, like I would build the stage and then, uh, so I was kind of stage managing as well on this tour, but it's like, I'm here. Let me just set everything up. So that way we can like sound check when you guys are ready to walk in the room. Um, you know, it's, it's really just like being the guy with the answers, you know, if a band's like, Hey, what's this, where is this going? Like, I just have to have the answers for them. Um, sometimes it's terrible. I had a tour where I got a lot of gray hair and I said, I'm quitting. I'm done. Like, I hate this dude or this person. Like, it's just like, I, you know, but then this tour I had, 17 people that were professional and mm. it was like oh my gosh like there was n- literally not one bad day on the tour with anybody and that's pretty rare forks drum closet nashville's full line drum store celebrating its 40th year in business forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of music city Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So do the other bands have their own tour manager or are you kind of the overseer of of the three bands or whatever? I'm typically the overseer. I think it's a little bit of um, control issues. I like to, but also the promoter does not want three bands sending emails for the same show. Mm. Like they just don't. So I typically like if we're headlining, I will take the reins and I'll tell all the bands like, Hey, I'll advance all the shows. Um, and then I'll have a point of contact with each band, which typically if they don't have a tour manager, it's typically the singer. It wasn't this tour. If we're supporting a band, then I don't really have to do anything. I just, cause my guys are very, they're self-sufficient. 
they know the deal, they know their jobs and they're, you know, they're good. Like I don't have to like order them food. Like I've seen too many tour managers where it's just like, those guys, they're not children. Like, why do you treat them as such? Or mm -hmm. why do they act to be treated like children? So, but that's, you know, that's just their personality. My guys are not like that. So if, yeah, if we're supporting somebody, you know, I'm just the point of contact for that tour manager. And he typically, he or she, a lot of women out there tour managing, and they're so much better than we are as guys. Um, but, you know, Lately, we've been doing the last two tours have been headliners. And then at our festivals, those are going to be wild because I'm kind of the point of contact for a lot of stuff, but the festivals are so much bigger than us. Like we're not even close to a headliner. Like in Cincinnati, we have Jimmy World as our headliner. Like that's, you know, like I'm just going to be the person connecting with their tour manager and kind mm. of you know, a liaison. But, um, last year when we did the festival, it's like, Oh, sir, you're the TM. And I'm like, I guess like, you know, like <laughs> reluctantly, I'm like, there's like 40 bands. I guess I'm your guy, but I'm also screen printing t-shirts and I have to play at three 30. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's a lot. So I can say when it's my band, and like our friends, it's really easy. Like they're, they make my job really easy. Um, and we're not dealing with a lot of, you know, I've had to, I've had to go to some people. So, you know, me, I don't know how you were, if you call me Chris or Poppy, but the running joke for me is Poppy's the drummer. He's fun. He's a good time. Chris is the guy who will say, let's go to the ATM. Where's my money? Uh, <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> and I, and I, and I had to do it in Atlanta and he was like, I don't have it. I'm like, I don't care. You have a contract. I'm like, you didn't do your job. I'm like the posters that we sent you, I saw them in the trash can. So let's go to the ATM. And everybody was like, Whoa. And I mean, I, I was like, don't care. I, you know, and that was probably, seven years ago. I don't think I've had to do that in a long time. I had a guy in Vegas try to pay me too much money. And I was like, is this a joke? Are you trying to get me like to mess up? I was like, you don't owe me that much money. And then he called his boss and he's like, Oh my gosh, I almost gave you. I'm like, yeah, you tried to pay me way too much money. So the next time we went back there, I settled with the same guy and I just said, listen, tonight, if you try to give me too much money, I'm taking it. So make sure your numbers are in order. <laughs> yeah. So the settling is so at, at the level you guys are at, you still have to wait to the end of the night and, and it's a cash transaction or a check. I mean, that's. Yeah. It, it's, you know, I had, it's, it's a check or like a wire. We mm -hmm. typically just do checks, but a lot of times like we had on this tour, like the first three shows were sold out. So they were, the settlement was easy. We already knew going into it, the show sold out before um, the doors even opened. So if it's that like that, it's pretty easy. It's cut and dry spreadsheets. A lot of these ven venues were live nation, mm. you know? So like they, they have, it's not a kid who's booking our band. It's like a company, which is 
good and you know they take the good with a bad there but it i typically don't have to like worry about are their numbers right because they have to be like they're mm. corporations but there's been a couple shows where they're like hey do you want to you want to settle and like doors are still open tickets are still selling and mm. if i hit if we hit this many tickets we get a back end so i have to you know it's like unless i know like we're not going to get close guarantees the guarantee or if it's like a sellout offer meaning like if one kid comes or this show sells out the guarantee is the same i can settle maybe beforehand depending on you know like where i play in the set but yeah it's typically like waiting till i get off stage and like kind of pack up the drums maybe i load the trailer then i go settle or but yeah that's every night you know making sure that we get paid and making sure the money's right um and then you know i let the other bands collect on their behalf mm. because that's their money it's like okay just look over the settlement make sure it's all right make sure they have what they need but I like to let the other bands do that because whenever we're not headlining, I'm the one who goes and gets paid and I make sure that money's, you know, what it's supposed to be. So how do you carve out your day to become poppy? Like what, how do you not, how are you go from Chris to the drummer in the band who has to play at hundred uh, percent? I think we all, I think everybody knows to respect like, okay, we're either, you know, on that, on this tour, we either played two or three. So we played the either eight twenty or nine forty, you know, something like that. And I think the overall understanding is up to about an hour before you're set, just leave the band alone. You know, like don't, try not to like bother them unless you need them because they're probably going to start like getting into that headspace of playing a show. And because on this tour, we had one back line, there was no real changeover. Everybody used the same stuff. Um, you know, so I would just like, all right, I would just leave and go wherever I wanted to go, grab my pad and just start getting sticks in my hands to start like warming up or I would go stretch whatever. And, just everybody kind of does their own thing and they all kind of disperse, you know, go wherever they're going to do, or they just sit on the bus and just hang out, you know? And, but that's like the preparation for the show. So, you know, by the time doors open, like I really do switch from tour manager to musician mm. because once the, on that tour specifically, it really ran unbelievably smooth i never had to go to anybody and say you're on stage in five minutes so 6 30 i it's fully me as a musician and then when i get off stage i turn back into the the crew guy if you will um and that that's pretty common um you know i usually have like at least a half an hour of downtime and that half hour is all i really if it comes down to it, that's all I really need to like get my head space where I'm like, okay, it's time to play a show. Mm. Um, every now and then, depending on the show or the festival, I'll get a text. I'll start getting like my phone will start going off. I'm like, I don't have time to deal with this right now, but 
but sometimes you do. Um, this last tour is just kind of like, uh, it couldn't have been better. It's you know, boiled it, it allowed, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It allowed me to like, just like enjoy both of my jobs, you know, mm. and, and not be like, Oh God, I have to set this up again. Or after like every day I was like, okay, let's load the trailer. Let's unload the trailer. I just, it went really smooth. Um, it's not always like that, but I'm hoping that it stays like that for a bit. How'd your kit hold up with with three drummers playing it? Three drummers. Um, we went through a bass, not through it. The one of the other guys, he is a heavy, heavy hitter with his foot. Like he is heavy. He's like, um, I dented the kick drum. It was an Evans UV one, and I, with a pad. And I'm like that's their most durable head. He's like, <laughs> I think we should, I think we should change it. I think it's going to break. Uh, two, two days after that, he's like, I dented the head. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Using a wood beater. And what do you got going on? Actually, I think he went through his, his felt. And I think he was hitting, like he said, it has like a, like a little wood ball on it. Mm. But I'm like, I think you're just hitting wood to mylar. Um, but, um, we only changed the rack Tom once we never changed the floor Tom. So like technique wise on the hands, I think everybody knows how to play. I think that drummer, uh, for armor for sleep, he just has a really heavy foot. He plays a lot of notes on mm. the kick and he plays them, but I'm like, you play solid, but I mean, the kit said star classic, it's durable. It stays in tune. Like there were no problems with that drum kit. And that's why I brought the one I did because I knew it could take the beating, but I had three drummer or two drummers who respected the drums and their players. So they treated it like theirs. And I was like, this is great. You know, it's, that's not always the case either, but I think I knew who I was getting into you know like i'm letting these people use my drums and i was fine with it was that your decision now, as tour manager or <laughs> as it was it was actually decided by my singer in the band he's like why you want to bring two drum kits i'm like well i'm sure nash wants to use his he's like, yeah but there's no room in the trailer i'm like there's plenty of room but it turned into everybody flew home from richmond virginia when the tour was over so the bus went back to Ohio so my drums could live on it. It picked us up in Ohio. There was no flying of gear. So it just kind of turned into, well, for the ease of use. So nobody has to fly with gear. Do you want to just use all of the bands, like all of our gear? And so, you know, they just brought their snares and cymbals and kick pedals and that was it. So it was kind of like a, one band he asked he's like can i use all of your stuff because we can't we're in a minivan we can't travel with anything so i said sure um the other guy kind of the same thing he was like if i bring my hardware or bring anything else i'm not gonna be able to get it home so mm -hmm. i said yeah that's totally fine um so essentially it's like renting a backline in, in a way mm -hmm. you know, like it's there you don't have to worry about it it just happened to be my kit rather than a backline company's and they didn't have to pay for it, which was nice. Yeah, that's great. And you were teching essentially for everyone then. 
yeah i told him i was like i want to build the kit and i want to tear it down and they're like okay so yeah but that was more like that was like my like 10 minutes of therapy you know i guess like yeah yeah but i also like you know when it comes to packing them up i want them to go back in the cases how i want them to go um and you know the setup like but they would always help like it's not like they were like you know, but if they were doing their own thing, it was just kind of like, okay, you guys go do your thing. I'll load in. I'll make sure the stage is ready for whenever the bands walk on. And I just wanted to make their day as easy as possible as well. So were they changing like cymbal stand heights and that kind of stuff? Or was it? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Um, the other two guys kind of played similarly. They were lower, but their cymbals were high. Hmm. And then I would raise the stool and the snare and then drop the cymbals. So it was really like odd. Like they were like Dave Grohl, you know, like super high, high hats, low snare. And then I would just shrink the gap and like go like, you know, three or four inches from hats to snare. So, but it wasn't like nobody really moved any, everybody kind of played the kit, how I set it up or how it got set up. And I think that made it like challenging, but also really easy because none of the mics had to move. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, and like, I just told the sound engineers, I'm like, this is going to be the easiest day you have all week. There's <laughs> Nothing's moving. Do you, you, were you rolling with house engineers? Uh, yeah, we used all house engineers for, for everything. Like we very rarely get to bring any sound. Um, or have our own sound engineer. Uh, we are controlling our own in-ears now, but we still use the house to kind of set it all up in patch and mic everything. But um, yeah, so we're, you know, I'm meeting the sound guy every day and I'm like, all right, this is your venue. Our band knows what we sound like. Just make us sound good to the fans. Um, most 21 days, it was great three days it wasn't oh yeah <laughs> oh I pittsburgh wasn't a bad one <laughs> no pittsburgh pittsburgh staff was great yeah that that theater their, their staff is really good yeah and, and, and cra- the crazy thing is is like the three shows where you know it's like okay i don't i don't know their lives i don't know what they're doing the shows were great. I was like, Oh my God, like, thank, thank God, because everything leading up to it was a disaster. But then the show was like, these kids are wild tonight. I'm like, all right. You know, and they just, it, they were really t- two of them were the fun, one of the funnest shows of tour, but like the day was terrible <laughs> on my end <laughs> for actually for everybody. Everybody's like, that was bad. <laughs> Is it just like a logistics thing? Like my coordinating with with staff or whatever uh i think i think one venue it's like the monitor person would be great and the front of house would be bad and i don't mean bad like just getting flustered or like whatever and then one monitor guy he was just nothing was patched right and Mm. it was almost like he didn't like know his board and and i was like I don't know if he's new. If he's new at this, 
then you cut him slack. If he's done this for a long time, then he has other issues that need to be dealt with. Um, but I think there was some substance abuse, abuse issues uh, here and there with some of these people. I'm like, I don't think you're actually mentally here. Mm. And I think your job is suffering. And if I was your boss, you would be fired today. Mm. Wow. Yeah. You know, like, it's like, you should be let go. You don't know what you're doing. And this is a professional setting and that's not professional. Like, um, but, but yeah, it's hard. Like if you're, you know, you're, you're meeting this person and you're with them for maybe nine hours, 10 hours, really like, you know, you're, you're on stage and they're at the front of house. It's hard to communicate. So you just kind of hope that they can do their job well. And, and, most of the time, 95% of the time they do. And that's why they work at these venues, you know, like, like a house of blues venue, you know, that their staff is going to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and that's the other thing too, as like a tour manager, I really deal with every single person in the venue, the production, the settlement, the front of house, the lighting, the monitors, you know, everybody that's like there, like I'm the point of contact. So I'm dealing with all of them. And it's very rare that I meet somebody where I'm like, Oh my God, you're terrible. It's usually like, Oh, holy cow. Like the last show in Richmond, the guy I settled with, as we got done, he starts talking about like drumming and like, he's like, Oh yeah, I studied jazz. And I got my master's in like hand percussion. And I'm like, why didn't we talk about drums? He's like you have my number, just call me. We'll talk drums. And I was like, all right like he it was so awesome like you know my singer always makes fun of me because i like will learn their names because i deal with them all day either through text or just like face to face and like i know more crew people in venues than i know some band members like mm. i don't even know some of my favorite bands names like member wise but i can tell you like who does monitors at this venue or who's <laughs> front of house because like I'm working with them all day yeah. and like, you know, like their job is, you know, it's their venue, but like my job is to like, make sure that we communicate well and, 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 you know, have a good show because that's ultimately the whole goal of going on tour is to put on a fun show for the people that bought a ticket to come. So before the yeah. next run, um, because you had three different drummers hitting your kit, are you going to do a extra special pre, like, you know, check screws and things? I mean, how do you kind of rehab your kit before the next run? Well, my next batch of shows, they're almost all fly days. Um, we have our festivals, so it's called is for lovers and it's, we're doing eight of them and they start. Oh my gosh. Like we have one in like two and a half weeks in Hawaii. Like I leave next oh, wow. week for Hawaii. <laughs> so it'll, there'll be a lot of backline kits coming up in my future. Yeah. Um, and then the next tour that I do, I think will be in September and I'll take my other kit out that's sitting at home right now. So I'll just probably just change the heads on it. I mean, the one that I just took, I'll just, clean it when i get home or i won't i, I won't you know, <laughs> i don't play it a ton but that's why i brought it because it was like it's the one that i toured with before and it has a couple of nicks on it so and it's just a solid kit like 
I, it just doesn't go out of tune. It, nothing really comes loose. If I do change a head, sure. I'll go through and like, make sure everything's like tight. But I mean, when I was teching for the old drummer and, you know, he left and I reached out to Tom and I was like, I've been teching your drums and they're just wonderful. Like I would love to play for your company. And that, that was the thing. I'm like, I know that these drums are durable and our former drummer was, he hit too hard. Like he demolished his drums mm. and I still never really had to like, Oh, I, I never had like them go, going out of tune, you know, maybe his snare would like detune a little bit because that's just natural. But yeah, I'll just, when, I mean, they're sitting in Ohio now, I'll, I'll probably leave them in the cases until I have a show that I have to get them out. Um, but I will say, I wish I could fly with my drums rather than doing a backline and, mm. But for the next tour, yeah, I'll take my, I have a Birch Bambinga Star Classic and that'll come out on the road and nice. I'll just get cleaned up and new heads and hit the road. So have you had any, any backline kits that are just so way off your rider or they've been pretty, pretty accurate? Some, a lot of times I'll be like, we don't, we don't have any Tommy kits. We have a DW. I'm like, that's fine. Um, it's typically the right sizing, but I'm not really specific. The thing that I hate the most is when they don't have, like, if they don't have the hardware I want, or if they don't give me a, like, they'll bring a three-legged hi-hat stand. I'm like, I don't want that. I'm like, I want two. Mm. Like, I don't care about the drums as much other than, like, if they bring me a kit that's the heads are shot on it. Like, I got one kit i'm like okay cool you brought me a tama but the heads are not new or if it's one backline kit for a couple bands and i'm playing last i'm like like oh is it okay if like the other two bands before you use it i'm like well do you have new heads and can you change them fast huh. he's like no i think it'll be okay and then i get to the kit and they're like dented yeah I'm of like, course ah what are you doing like who's i think i dented mike said i dented the snare yesterday <laughs> i don't know if it was me because i'm like i think there's a dent on that already it might have been me it might have been a, a guy before me i'm not sure but when you're from the fences like, <laughs> i mean we were tracking and he said i heard him say right before i went on he's like you really have to lay into him so the, so the compressors can do their job and i'm like I mean, I've recorded in a studio, so I know you're supposed to hit hard, solid, hard center, you know, like consistent, but anyway, but he, yeah, he was, I think I did it. <laughs> He's like, it's my fault. It's a single ply. But, um, but you know, when he plays, it's like, you can swing for the fences, but you can still like, if your technique's good, you're not going to damage it. So one specific show was like, the drums were great. You know, really the thing that I hate the most because they can never, they just don't bring me like, I'm a Peisty artist. So I'm that, that's what I want. If I don't fly with my symbols, it's like, okay, here's what I want. And a lot of times they'll bring me like, really like, they'll bring me like roots or just really thick and heavy symbols. And like, 
rides that are pingy and not crashy. And like, that's when it's like, this doesn't sound anything like me and it feels different. The drums, like you kind of care less about because as long as they're solid, it's a solid drum kit. I can tune it and make it sound how I want. But the hardware and the cymbals are the, and the snare, that's a tricky one. So I've been trying to fly more with my snare and cymbals just as a backup. Um, what is your snare? England. Is that an Acrylite? Uh, on this tour, I played an Acrylite. Yeah. And I played it. Mm-hmm. I never had to swap out. I never had to like, I never broke a head. And all I got were like, man, that snare sounds good. Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, bu- I brought a Superphonic as my backup, but I, I never played it. Um, I think I sound checked with it one night just to hear like what it would sound like. And I'm like, no, I like the Acrylite better. It's mm. um, impressive. It's it didn't also, detune on you. Did you put locks on it? No, I had, I had one show where it did. I could tell cause I, I'm where we're, we're doing in ears and you know, I can mix myself and I'm like, my snare sounds lower, but it sounds great. It was kind of like just that, like detuning one lug, mm-hmm. you know, and you just, it just really does like, cause I have it. I mean, I have that thing t- tuned up. It's a cracker. Um, but it sounds, it's awesome. You know, it's just dry. It's done. But that one day I'm like, man, this thing sounds great today in my ears. And I don't know what it sounded like on stage, but in my ears, it felt and sounded so good. And I was like, yep, that guy is loose. <laughs> so I really didn't mind it, but I'm sure from song one to song 12, you know, maybe the sound engineer, engineer is going like, what is happening here? But I loved it. It's that one's a solid drum too. It just doesn't really go out of tune very often. You know, when I, that's my, I just remembered something when I saw Carl Brazil play with, uh, I don't remember who years ago, his snare detuned throughout the show. And I asked him about it and he was like, yeah, that's once I realized the drum did that, it made sense because we played the slower songs towards the end of the night anyway, and it needed to be a fatter Ah. sound. So he's like, I don't care. I just let it detune (laughs) throughout the night. I think he was playing a black beauty. Really? Yeah, I have I have a sugar snare, and that one I like to put locks on because I feel like it. I don't know why. I mean, every drum does it, but that one tends to like drop out the two lugs closest to me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, I'm I love it. It's like a great drum to play. Maybe I'm just smacking the crap out of it because it's like fun to hit hard. Um, and I'm probably rim shotting that one a lot. Like I'm trying to get better at like being uh, deliberate with a rim shot versus center. You know, hitting the center just does it feels different. It really feels like you're not quite connecting with the drum if you're hitting hard. If you're hitting light, like it's it's it feels right, but like a really hard backbeat is like kind of wants to be a, a rim shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that sugar drum, I, I like to rim shot the crap out of it. So that's probably why it goes down. So that one usually has a lock on it. And that was my main touring snare. Once I got it and I was like, all right, this is the one. And every time I get like a new snare, the bands, are, the band guys are like, 
yep, that's the snare. Like that one's <laughs> awesome. And then I'll bring another one. Like that one's pretty good. Or so I'm like, okay, I just have some good snares, but I didn't want to travel with that sugar. I'm like, this is, this is more like a piece of art. Yeah. That sound. And it's like, it's, I think I'm going to leave that at home from now on. Like if something happens to that drum, like I'm going to be crushed. If some, like, you know, I dropped, I dropped, I have a, a black nickel over brass Tama, like an SLP, one of their, you know, black beauty kind of knockoffs. And it fell one day and it, where the, where the strain, the throw off was, it just dented the shell. Mm. Like it just pushed it in. And like, I was like, okay, I'll just hammer it back. It'll still, it still plays. But if that happened, like one of my wood drums, I'd be like, you know, what if it breaks? So I just made the decision to take metal snares on this tour just for durability. Mm. And the good thing with an Acrylite, they all sound the same. You can just grab one anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I was trying to go also for like consistency, like the five and a half and the six and a half Ludwig's like, they're going to sound different, but they're going to be close enough. But if I had brought like my eight inch Tama maple snare one, I'd have to change my height in the middle of the set. You know, mm. it's not, I couldn't just grab the snare, put it on. Like it would be too high. Um, and it would sound so much different than the Acrylite in the middle of the show. It'd be like, Oh, that it sounds different now. And I think that that was like something I thought about, like, if I had two acrylites, that's what I would have brought. Mm -hmm. Like I would just, I think my backup should be a matching snare for what I'm playing. Not like, Oh, I'm going to change it up tonight because we just don't do that. You know, like our, even our slow songs, I just hit center of the drum instead of a, instead of a rim shot, you know, just for that, like a little bit of difference in sound. What heads are you using? I need to know. They're that durable. Uh, on the snare, which obviously I changed that like a couple of times on the tour, um, probably twice. Um, Evans HD dry or ST dry. I had, I bought both for this tour and I just grabbed whatever the first one I saw. Uh, my toms are uh, G2 coded, or I think I started with UV1 coded. So, and then. Um, but I know we changed the rack, Tom, and I think I just had a G2 with me. But I typically, I'm typically coded G2s or UVs, UV1s. And uh, my snare, I like the I like the HD and the ST. Um, Kickhead, I think I have an EMAD on it now, but I started with the UV1, and that's what the guy dented. Mm -hmm. um, UV, UV1 coded. And yeah, it was awesome. Like I, I tuned it up. I mean, it's a 22, but I tuned it so much higher. And like, but I think everybody was like, oh, it's high, but it sounds really good. I'm like, it does. Like, I don't, I'm not really much of like a real deep thuddy bass drum guy. Mm -hmm. I like it, but I like the way like just heads cranked feel. Like, I just really want to be a jazz drummer. That's what I really want to do. <laughs> oh, man. Like, well, we're almost I at the end of the hour. So um, we have to talk about what your first snare was. That's always my one of my last questions. Or what your first kick. You have you had a, a cool kit that we talked about before. 
a Rogers kit? Well, yeah, but that wasn't my first. I got that when I was okay. an adult. Um, my first, I've thought about that. I've listened to your show, so I know. I don't know what my first snare drum was. <sighs> I had one, but I think my first drum kit that I got, it was a Ludwig. I know that for sure. I think my mom got it at a yard sale, but I do not remember if it came with a snare drum. Like for some reason, I don't think it did, but I can't picture a snare. I know the apartment I played in. It was a Ludwig. It was red. I don't know what it was. It could have been a rocker or it could have been something just like incredibly wonderful. But the first snare that I can actually remember having was like a 65 66 ludwig and it was like the white marine pearl oh wow. that was like aged it was like smoky it was like yellow and that's the first snare drum that i can actually remember owning so that to me is like that's the that's the snare i can remember um but i don't even know i i don't even know where i got that cincinnati like in the 90s you know i was probably you know, somewhere around like 17 or 18, I think when I moved to Cincinnati and I got that drum because I didn't really have a kit up until then. You know, like I had a kit when I was 16 and that was that Ludwig kit mm. that had a snare drum, <laughs> but I don't even know if it had, I don't even know if I had a symbol when I had that kit. Like it just, I'm like, oh, there were drums and I feel like there were no symbols, but there had to have been a snare. <laughs> We'll, get, we'll we'll go with a really cool Ludwig snare that I traded for a I traded fair and square. I got ripped off because he was smarter than I was. A uh, thirteen inch, I think it was a thirteen inch pearl piccolo. A black oh metal no! One. Yes, of course. Everyone had those in the nineties. I walked into a drum shop. I mean, I was playing in a hardcore band, and the Snapcase. There was a band called Snapcase, and they had an album with like, if you're into hardcore, it's like that snare drum is amazing. And I'm like, I want that sound. And I thought you had to get a piccolo, so I walked into a music store in Cincinnati. And I said, Hey, I have this drum that's just not really loud enough for what I do, which it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and I was like, He's like, What are you What are you looking to do? And I was like, Well, like, there's this piccolo upstairs, like the brass one. I'm like, Um. I don't know. I didn't know what I didn't know what that really meant. I was like, no, 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 it's a black one. He was like, what do you want to do? I'm like, you want to trade? And he was like, yeah, go get that drum. I don't know how much that snare is worth, but it was worth more than the hundred dollar piccolo that I got. Um, <laughs> yeah, but not to but you, because then you were happy and you were playing I, with the right sound I, in your I, band. I was. I was playing the right sound for what i played that drum for way too long <laughs> my god <laughs> to, to be young and not know any better i actually got my niece that drum for school band it came with like a bell set and, and a music stand uh -huh. and, and the, the really like they've repurposed that piccolo because no one uses it on drum set anymore it's like the beginner elementary school band snare <laughs> Instead of the act, instead of like a Ludwig. Yeah, exactly. Instead of like a good quality. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember that like Ludwig case, you know, when I was like 16 years old, I remember seeing it. I don't, 
I mean, maybe my drum kit came with one because I can remember that, but maybe I just had the case. You know what I mean? Mm. But that like, yeah, I really wish I knew. Like I've even asked my cousin, I'm like, do you remember my drum kit for when I was a teenager? He's like, I remember you playing in the apartment. I'm like, yeah, but what was it? (laughs) I don't know. You'll never know. (laughs) I'll never know. So I'm going to lie to myself. 65 Ludwig. That's gone. In reality, it was a three by 13 pearl steel piccolo with the black powder coat finish. (laughs) Oh my God. What a piece of crap. (laughs) No, no. Great, great for the right, for the right time. I would never buy it. Never, ever again. (laughs) All right, Chris, thank you for coming on. I know you've got to get ready to go play drums all day, so I won't keep any longer. And hopefully you'll be back through Pittsburgh soon and everyone go check out a Hawthorne Heights show, go to their festivals, follow you. Your Instagram handle was X poppy or something. What is it? X poppy X P O P P Y. There we go. Mm -hmm. All right. Have fun. Tell Mike I said hi and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. I'll see you later. All right. Once again, go over to isforloversfestival.com if you want to learn more about the festival that Chris helps co-produce, hawthornheights.com for tour dates. You can go to littlemonsterprinting.com if you want to check out his printing company. His Instagram handle is xpoppyx if you want to follow him there. And again, thank you all for listening. It's been super cool to celebrate two years here, um, three complete seasons, and there's so many more ideas that I can't wait to start sharing. And we're going to get more of you back involved. I still have some listener questions and some intro beats, but I felt like this season got a little bit disorganized just on me because we're doing so much work with the Drone Factor Director website that it's been hard for me to really execute this show like I want to. So like I said, I'm probably going to take a week or two off to kind of restructure, get organized, film a bunch of content, get a bunch of interviews lined up, get a bunch more of these 10 reasons to love taken care of. So the show's gonna be bigger and better. And I thank you all so much. Have a good one.